Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Are you looking for a place to belong? I grew up in church and I can tell you that sometimes even I can feel like an outsider. But we want to be the church that everyone can feel at home in. From the seasoned believer to the person who's just not really sure whether God is out there at all. So we're pouring all of our attention into small groups. Small groups are where we want to hear from you and help you take root and grow in relationship with other people just like you. For more information on small groups, send us an email at fbcrungi at gmail.com with your name and information and title the email, I'm interested in small groups. We really believe that in order to break the chains of entitlement, you must first differentiate between what you are and aren't entitled to. But God doesn't stop there. So we're going to explore one of the hardest places to root out entitlement. This message is entitled, Entitlement in Church. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I don't know who sets the worship center temperature, but why does it have to be so cold? Why do you have to be so right? Heated chairs are now being installed. This one wants a small church, but I'm afraid if it's too small, they're gonna make me volunteer like crazy. And I don't stack chairs, <laughs> do I? Makes total sense. Join now and we'll let you decide the size of our church. We're millennials. And we want a church that... Say no more. Any requests you have will be granted immediately. Parking is horrible. It takes me almost six minutes to get from my car to the building. Ugh. It's going to take me six seconds to tell you a valet service is on the way. My pastor's preaching, it's all over the map. I say, oh, I don't know, stick with the books of the Bible. We should be only exegetical. Okay. Next week, we start John chapter 1, verse 1. And we'll even start pronouncing that word the way you said it. Hey, I'd like this sermon to be no longer than 30 minutes. How does 15 minutes sound? Hey, anybody willing to go 15 should be willing to go to 10. <laughs> you drive a hard bargain. But from now on, five-minute sermons it is. <laughs> now you're talking. Me, church, where it's all about you. You know, it's pretty easy to spot entitlement when we're looking at others. Maybe our culture, maybe a different generation. But it's a little bit more difficult to deal with the entitlement that's in us. The entitlement that's in church. Last Sunday, we began a brand new series called All About Entitlement, where we talked about how entitlement runs deep in all of us. Because each of us are born with a desire to want to be God. It's part of the sinful nature. And we talked about how we have to curve that uh, desire to want to be God, and we instead need to be like God, which means we need to really watch Him and do the things that He does. We didn't talk about this last week, but believe it or not, there is such a thing as righteous entitlement. Entitlement is simply the fact of having someone owe you, granted by law or custom. So, for example, if you paid into a retirement plan all your life, when you retire, you are entitled to that money to come from your retirement account. However, the best example of entitlement, righteous entitlement, has everything to do with God. Since God created everything, everything then belongs to Him, or it at least should. 
So the issue isn't that entitlement in and of itself is wrong. What we've been addressing is that there are circumstances where people feel entitled even though they have no reason to. Much of the time, those people are us. Now, I made the statement last week that unrighteous entitlement at its core is the equivalent of saying, I am God. Because the reality is that we want to call the shots. We want to be God, but we should instead want to be like God. You know, I understand that that statement, I am God, sounds like a stretch, especially when we start talking about entitlement. But by the time I'm done today, I hope to convince you just how accurate that statement really is. Did you know that there is an attitude of entitlement that exists within the church? I know, don't faint. (laughs) Duh, we already know that. But you know, if there was one place where an attitude of entitlement should be non-existent, it should be within the local church. Unfortunately, the local church is one of those places where an attitude of entitlement not only exists, but it's prevalent and it's very, very difficult to stamp out. So not only is it prevalent, a lot of time it can be a motivating force of why we meet and how we meet. Let me say that as the pastor of this church, I've been um, having a difficult time trying to establish appropriate boundaries. Um, Somebody once told me that if you're a pastor, you put yourself out there to be used by the church, and they won't tell you when it's time to stop. In other words, it's up to me to say, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm not going to do, and enough's enough. And I I have a hard time doing that. It's extremely difficult for me to, to know where to draw the line because I know I was put on this earth to be a servant, and servants serve. And so it's very easy for me to fall in that trap of getting into that well, let's get heated seats so our chairs uh, aren't so cold, so that people aren't cold during the, the service, because we heard people complain, and oh my goodness, there's a millennial. Whatever you want will be granted immediately. Today, I want to spend some time just differentiate, differentiate, yeah, I can't say the word, differentiating between what we're actually entitled to and what we're not entitled to as followers of Christ. Because in truth, you are entitled to some things. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So there are some things that you, being a follower of Jesus Christ, are entitled to because you have been adopted into the family. So for example, if you are in Christ you are entitled to a place to belong within the body of Christ. If if you are in Christ, you are entitled to love and support from other believers. You are entitled to be held accountable by those who love you and will encourage you to seek God and be more like Christ. You are entitled to a church where you don't have to pretend that everything is okay when it's really not. You are entitled to a church where Jesus is the focus, not the pastor's message or the worship. You're entitled to a church that emphasizes grace, not law. You are entitled to a church where people love one another, forgive one another, and bear with one another. You are entitled to a church that isn't so busy that it doesn't have time for things like evangelism and true discipleship. You are entitled to a church that doesn't play on your emotions or manipulate you through shame or fear. 
You are entitled to a church that doesn't monopolize your time, talents, and tithe. So yes, there are some things that you are righteously entitled to. The problem is, is that we often mix up these things, the things that we are righteously entitled to, or the things that we have absolutely no business developing feelings of entitlement over. You know, I was very gently reminded the other day that the last pastor that made as many changes as I'm trying to make didn't last very long. And because his comment bothered me, I looked for a way to understand where it was coming from. And so I, I did what I do whenever I'm looking for guidance. I pray and I look for a book. And so I picked up a book and of course I read my Bible. So it's not just, oh, I bypass the Bible and go somewhere else. Um, I, I look for advice from other pastors. And so I picked up a book from a pastor uh, named Gordon McDonald, and he wrote a book called Who Stole My Church? Uh, the book is about a pastor who encouraged heavy, or he encountered heavy resistance um, to a direction he was trying to take the church during a business meeting one night. And he later sits down with a group of people that were there, and he asked them to explain where all their frustration was coming from, and then they began to express how they felt about all the changes that had been made. For example, they say things like, what happened to our Sunday school classes? We used to just sit down and study the Bible. And nobody wants to come and just read the Bible anymore. What's the matter with people? Somebody else said, you know what I really miss is the choir. We used to have so much participation from the church. And we would have so many great singers in our church. And they got replaced with five people with microphones stuck in their mouths that looked like they're eating a bunch of ice cream cones. Somebody else said, people used to fill the church on Sunday nights. But when the pastor... Uh, you know, changed it from just tr preaching a message on Sunday nights to something else, then people stopped coming and we had to close that program. Somebody else said, what I really miss is the hymns. Hymns have good doctrine. The songs we sing today don't seem to have any depth to them. It's just the same thing said 50 different ways over and over and over again. And then somebody said it. She said, I just feel like somebody stole my church and I want it back. You know, the pastor said he, he couldn't help but feel as if this person was saying that he was part of a band of thieves who had held their church hostage and hostage and, and, and at least driven the getaway car. And he had stolen their church. He also said that he began to feel as if he'd lost their confidence as their leader and, and that they felt like the sooner he resigned and left, the better. They tried to tell him not to take this, you know, the way that they felt personally. But for him, it was like slapping somebody across the face and telling them not to take it personally. But in truth, you see, he needed to be reminded about how they felt about all these changes. And then he did something dangerous. He asked them to reflect upon when they thought the best days of the church were. He said he was holding out for a ray of hope that even for a moment of his tenure might have been pleasant for them. However, from their comments, he could trace their best moment back to a weekend in 1972 when the president of Moody Bible Institute had driven all the way from Chicago to hold a weekend Bible conference at their church. See, that was when they heard music that they enjoyed, teaching that they could relate to, and it was when most of them got saved. He told them that his heart was broken for them because... They felt as if they had been violated, that their church had been stolen from them. 
And he grieved for them because there were many of the things that they loved about the church that was very likely never going to come back, even with the new pastor if he were to be replaced. But he did something pretty profound in his book. He carefully had them read a verse out loud. Acts 20, verse 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of God's church, which he bought with his own blood. He makes the point the church actually belongs to Christ, not us. Because he purchased it with his blood. That means it's his. He made the payment. You know, it's so easy to begin to believe that the church belongs to us. Because, you know, we give our money to it. We're here every time the doors are open. We labor through ministry with blood, sweat, and tears, trying to move it from one place to the next. And it's only natural to want to take ownership of the church, especially when we've been here doing God's work for a long period of time. But after studying this verse together, the person who actually made that comment about, I just feel like somebody has stolen my church and I want it back, this is what she said. You know, our church is changing, and I can see that. But maybe it's not the pastor that's the one doing the changing. Maybe it's God. If anyone is stealing the church, maybe it's him. Maybe he's stealing the church back because we've tried to steal it from him. It's just so very hard seeing some of the things that I've loved so much disappearing and being replaced by something else. Now, I'm still trying to figure out if this conversation that this author explained in this book really happened or whether this guy just made it all up. But regardless whether it's true or not, I think there's some truth in that statement that we need to unpack. You know, unrighteous entitlement is such an easy thing to fall into, especially in church. Because we were married in this church, and my kid gave his life to, to Christ in this church, and, and then they were baptized, and, and then, you know, hey, you remember when so-and-so came in, and they fell on their knees right there, and we counseled with them right in that spot? Or, hey, I even, my family donated a, a set of chairs to this church, and that's how we remember that they were a part of this body. Did you know that there was a time when the very first church had an issue with unrighteous entitlement? It's true. In the book of Mark, Jesus had gathered the first church, the 12 disciples. And believe it or not, even though they had the perfect example of unselfishness, the perfect example of compassion, and the perfect example of grace acting out love right before their very eyes, they started to feel unrighteous entitlement. We'll read this passage, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. I want you to see if you can, you can spot entitlement, unrighteous entitlement when you see it. Let's, let's start with verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, that probably sounds like unrighteous entitlement. But keep in mind that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything that you ask for, 
it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. And we know that in Matthew chapter 18, um, that Matthew and Mark and Luke are all the synoptic gospels. So it's a similar story being told from a different perspective. This is actually before this exchange that we're reading about now happens. So essentially what happened is they got together and they said, Hey, didn't Jesus say that if two of us agree on something, a particular prayer that it will be granted? Okay, well, I, I, I'd really like this. You'd really like that too? Let's go to Jesus and let's ask him about it. So I'll let you figure out whether that was unrighteous entitlement or not. Um, in other words, they got together and they asked, they made a pretty bold request. So Mark chapter 10, verse 36 and 37 says, Jesus says, what, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever written something down, like in a journal or something, and you came back to it years later and you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, I was so stupid and naive? One day I found a journal that I'd kept whenever I was 16. What did I find in it? Well, let's just say I ended up ripping about 20 to 30 pages out of it and burning them so nobody would ever see them. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to know how stupid and naive I really was. Now, you may or may not have noticed that John doesn't include this story that involves him in the Gospel of John. And the reason why is because I think he most likely looks back at this moment and realizes how stupid and naive this outrageous request really was. Do you really think that you have the right, the privilege to even sit in the same room as Jesus Christ, much less that you should be seated at his right or left hand? What in the world were they thinking? Essentially what they were saying is, Jesus, let us rule with you. This meant that they not only thought they were better than the other ten disciples, but in their thinking they were greater than Moses and Elijah they were greater than Abraham. Were they really so arrogant as to believe that they belonged in the same zip code as the Jesus Christ? Well, try to think about where they might have been coming from. Um, they'd given up everything to follow him. Not only that, but John even refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is a Wallerism, so you can take it for what it's worth, but I believe James and John were Jesus' best friends. Can the Son of God really have a best friend? Well, you know, you can have people that you're closest to. Why can't he? Who was there when Jesus was transfigured on the mount? Peter, James, and John. Who went to pray with Jesus in the garden? Peter, James, and John. When Jesus went to the cross, who was the only disciple standing at the foot of the cross when all of the other disciples had run away? John. Who did Jesus command to take care of his mother when he was on the cross? John. You see, these men had been there every time Jesus had needed them. And there was ever a time when somebody needed ministry, James and John were usually the ones sacrificing blood, sweat, and tears just to be there and minister. So were they really that out of line? Well, if they were, they at least weren't in their own minds. Look what happens in Mark chapter 10, verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. 
Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Did you notice that Jesus in this verse, he doesn't really seem frustrated or angry or even indignant or even a little perturbed the fact that they would make such a request. He simply tells him, listen guys, you don't have any idea what you're asking for. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the requirement will be, the qualifying factor for a seat next to Jesus in his kingdom will be? Who do you think will be sitting there? It's a pretty tough question, right? Well, I personally believe that whoever sit there has to be really smart and exceptionally charming and good looking. And I think whoever he is, they should probably grow their beard out and kind of look a little bit like Jesus. But a receding hairline shouldn't be a disqualifying factor. He's going to need to be a good speaker, so being a pastor sure doesn't hurt. Who do you think should be sitting at the left and right hand of God? Now, if you pay attention when people try to answer this honestly, I think what you'll find is, is the person that they describe most often is them. Jesus was essentially asking his disciples, do you have any clue what the qualifications for a seat like these two entail? He goes on to ask them, can you drink from the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? So in other words, do you know what's going to happen to me? Do you really believe you're prepared to endure what I'm about to have to endure? Look what they say in verse 39. We can, they answered. (laughs) Jesus said to them, oh, and you will. You will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. I think that as we know what happened to James and John, that later on in their life, these words probably came back to them. Can you drink from the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm being baptized with? Oh yeah, we can. We can, Jesus. We can. We can. He said, guys, you don't have any clue what you're asking for. You know, um, in hindsight, that claim that was probably just made out of a tongue-in-cheek response, it probably was the real reason John didn't include this story in the retelling of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Because by the time John wrote the book of John, he had to come to find out just how hard it was to drink the cup and be baptized the same way Jesus had. Now, we're not talking about a water baptism. We know that Jesus is talking about persecution. persecution. Um, he, uh, before he goes to the cross, he even says to the Father, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Did you know that all the disciples, save Judas and John, died a martyr's death? Of the twelve, James, the brother of John, was the first to be tortured and killed because of his faith in Christ. In fact, when John wrote this gospel, he had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he lived out the rest of his life in solitude, and that's only because the previous attempt the Romans had made to boil him alive in in a vat of oil had failed. That was only because Jesus said that when he wanted him to remain alive, that he that would happen until he returns. Go look at the book of Revelation. As John looked back at the way he and his brother and his friends had suffered for Jesus, 
It probably felt awfully, awfully ridiculous and awfully naive to once ask for the cup that Jesus drank from. You'll notice that his brothers in Christ didn't have a top problem retelling this story. Matthew and Mark put it in there. Well, I think it just goes to show us that you know, we, we, as we grow and we move closer to Christ, that he really does transform us into becoming less of us and more of him. That there are times in our life where we look up and we think, you know, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. But when we see where Jesus leads us, you have to be like Jesus to go there. So Jesus tells James and John that these two seats have already been prepared in advance, which I think is an interesting point, for someone else. Are you ready for the real display of unrighteous entitlement in church? Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this little conversation that they were having, they became indignant with James and John. Why do you think the other ten disciples were so indignant? Do you think it had anything to do with whether they believed these two seats may or may not have belonged to them? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to beat up the church? <laughs> Whenever I was in school, that seemed to be one of the favorite conversations. The church failed me this way. The church failed me that way. And everybody was looking for a new church plant because the, in truth, we have a better idea of how to do church than the established church. It almost makes us sick thinking about how much we beat up the church. And I like to think of it as we're the bride of Christ. You know, sometimes I catch Erin looking at herself in the mirror, mirror and she doesn't like what she sees. I think that's really common in a lot of people. They don't like what they see in the mirror. But you know, I learned something from my dad. Never, ever, ever tear your spouse down. Always try your best to build them up. Um, my mother was told that she wasn't smart enough to go to school. <laughs> and because she was married to a man that encouraged her all the time, a few years ago she finished her PhD. <laughs> you know, we are very good at tearing down the body and even criticizing other people in the church and maybe even becoming indignant with how incredibly entitled they are. But if you look at it, it has a lot to do with how entitled we are and how entitled we feel. How dare you take what actually belongs to me? How dare you make changes in my church? How dare you think that that belongs to you when it really belongs to me? Maybe I've been here longer or I put in more work or I pray harder for this or you know what, I put more money into this than you have and I know that. Don't really know that, but I assume that. It's easy. It's easy to correct other people, but do you realize that there will come a day, and maybe that day has already come for a lot of you, where our children will criticize the church all over again and they will start to talk about how it failed them? I know that day's coming for me. Aaron and I are currently tied up in some family drama where some members of our family feel like they're entitled to a better childhood than the one that they received. 
You know, when I feel that way, which I do occasionally, I need to realize that I'm leaving an example for my children. And one day they will come to say the same things that I say. Monkey see, monkey do. These disciples, they were struggling for what they felt entitled to. And when Jesus should have dropped the mic and just walked away, he instead had compassion upon them and he got down in the muck and the mire with them. Listen to what he says in verse 42 through 44. So Jesus called them together. He said, okay, guys, come here. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them as their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be the great, greatest in the kingdom, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He tells them, my kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that you've ever experienced or even heard of. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be a servant to all. If you want to be the greatest, you must become the least. If you want to sit at the right hand and left hand of God, you must have humility and get over yourself. You ever notice it's very easy to detect everyone else's problems, but we're often blind to our own? Which means I'm quick to point out the flaws of others, but when my flaws are pointed out, I ignore them and I reject advice and you don't know what you're talking about. I act like if everyone would just listen to me, they would be better off, but I don't want to listen to others. You see, if anything's going to get better, it means I need to learn to shut my mouth and open my ears and my heart to receive criticism. Which means I also have to let those people who tell me all of my problems leave thinking that they are so smart and I am so stupid. Ooh, that's hard. But let me ask you a question. What do you think humility actually looks like? Humility is not beating yourself all up all the time, and really it's not letting other people beat you up either, so you have to be careful here. Humility is understanding where your place is. You're not the Lord. Neither am I. Jesus is saying we need to learn a healthy dose of humility here and become servants. And you know what? That would have been enough and an incredible lesson. And, and Jesus, if he just stopped there, man, we'd had a lot to chew on, but he doesn't. Look what he says in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, you know, guys, I'm righteously entitled to everything, but I've chosen to instead give what I'm righteously entitled to in service of others. In fact, I'm giving my life as a ransom to save many. If there were ever somebody, think about it, there's ever somebody who was righteously entitled to something, it's Jesus. Colossians 1.16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything belongs to Jesus. Which means that instead of being born into a manger, into a feed trough, he should have been born in the grandest palace that the world had to offer. Instead of never having a place to lay his head, he should have been entitled to receive all the world had to offer. 
Instead of going to the cross, he should have been going to a throne. But you see, if Jesus did that, we all would have been condemned. Jesus passed up on his entitlement so that we could be saved. You know, there's a great lesson for us to learn in this when it comes to the local church. Jesus passed up on what he was righteously entitled to so that we could serve, so that he could serve a bunch of ingrates that were righteous, unrighteously entitled. Think about it. That's what we were. It's kind of what we still are. We want some practical ways to help the entitled person in our homes and in our lives. But you know, if we're going to truly reach people for Christ, we need to first ask God to reach us. Because let's face it, we're entitled. There's some things we're righteously entitled to and some things that we, we've developed an unrighteous attitude in. So let me just ask you first and foremost, do you think that you're Jesus' best servant? <laughs> you know, I know it's a silly question, but do you want to be known as Jesus' favorite? I'm really starting to discover this attitude in me. I mean, I, I think the answer for me is true. Yes, I believe that I have the best theology in the world, and if I didn't, I wouldn't believe the way I believe. I believe I serve God to the best of my ability. I believe I've got it together and everyone in my family would just listen to me. They would not have so many problems. Listen, I know Jesus loves each of us, but did you know that I'm really his favorite? And if I'm his favorite, well, then I'm entitled to special privileges. So from now on, whenever we sing, you're just going to sing how great John is. You know, I'm just being silly, but deep down, don't we feel this way? And if we didn't, wouldn't we want to change? We refuse to take responsibility and choose instead to let other people serve us. I can certainly feel this way as the pastor. Move along, pastor coming through. We can develop an attitude that we're Jesus' right-hand man or right-hand woman, as it may be. You know, that does a lot of damage to the body of Christ. We don't belong at the right or left hand of Christ. The church, it isn't ours, it's His. We're not entitled to heated chairs or five-minute sermons or valet service to pick us, up, pick us up from our cars. Or We're not entitled to music that we enjoy, sermons that we can relate to, or a platform to sing our praises on. You're not Lord, and neither am I. However, there are some things that we are entitled to. And I know that we seldom get those things right. Listen, I, I know our church isn't what it could be, what it should be. When I look in the mirror, I see some things about us that I don't like. But I need to be very careful because I'm actually talking about the bride of Christ. And you better not talk about my wife. I wonder how he feels about his. We as a church should be able to deliver what you are actually entitled to all the time. But you know, we don't. And in truth, I think it's because we mix up all the things that we're not really entitled to. But just before you walk away from the church, because you know what? You're not getting the things that you actually are entitled to all the time. But before you walk away, throw up your hands in frustration, remember that not even the Son of Man, God, came to be served. But instead, 
chose to serve, to, instead chose to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, if we want to reach people for Christ, which is what I know he wants to do through us, it means we must put aside some of our righteous entitlements. Not just the things we're unrighteously entitled to, some of our righteous entitlements. And reach out to a bunch of ingrates who have unrighteous entitlement and act like they belong at the right or left hand of God. They want what they didn't work for and refuse to take responsibility for. But were we really that much different when Jesus came and reached us? Church, Jesus wants us to do his work. And if we tap into the Holy Spirit, follow Christ in this way, I believe he will. I want to end today with a passage of scripture. And I want you to think on it and pray on it. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me in the renewal of all things when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, the things that we're entitled to, they will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Those who were first will be last, and those who were last will be first. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes, and remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.